Max, how are you doing today? You know, I've been thinking a lot about animals recently. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like, you know, because when you look outside, you know how you, like, look at birds and you see birds? Yeah, they, or... they normally don't look as happy as I feel like they could. Right, and so, like, by the transitive property of animality, I have just been really excited for the... Uh, for all the animals out there that are uh, shout out to our animal listeners, all the animals out there who, who are, you know, they're roaming free now. Yeah. This, this is an episode for the animals. This uh, is. Yeah, yes. Cause this, this episode, uh, we want to reflect on how nature is coming back to us, you know, how it's starting to look like maybe counterintuitively, it's actually us who are the virus and not not the coronavirus well the coronavirus is not real so we'll start from there (laughs) so uh what are we talking about today will besides you know our own mutual animality yeah so we're 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 feeling a little bit closer to nature uh because of the coronavirus we started seeing economic activity slowing down Mm -hmm. nature returning uh, or at least that's kind of the a common thread in a lot of analysis that we've seen. And so we kind of want to talk about about a lot of those tropes and about what it is uh, about climate change and the coronavirus that makes people think basically we can't have a livable world uh, unless we stop producing altogether. What is it about what we conceive of as the economy that it is this kind of machine this you know so-called metabolic process um Mm -hmm. shout out to all the the ecological marxists out there (laughs) um yeah it's interesting because i feel like there's this the way this meme is sort of operating is like at multiple levels obviously there are the people who are sort of unabashedly posting on instagram because let's be real they're not on twitter um i mean there was that one guy but posting on instagram how nature's returning we were the virus and how you know make sure you swipe up to buy the latest uh you know facial product or something like that um but so that there's the obviously non-reflexive aspect but then there's the reflexive part of this which is it's kind of more sad it is pretty sad so there's a bunch you know a bunch of people on twitter who start you know who start making jokes and tweeting about nature's returning humanity's virus and i like that and i'm i'm implicated you know in that too because i'm a terrible person as well yeah there Um, were a bunch of tweets that this one had 1.4 million likes so you probably saw it which was here's an unexpected side of the pandemic the waters flowing through the canals of Venice are clear for the first time in forever. The fish are visible. The swans returned. Really, I mean, all that I can think of is like that Chernobyl documentary, <laughs> you know, where where decades after Chernobyl, you suddenly have nature and wildlife, you know, kind of returning to it. And, and full circle, you also have the, uh, you know, packs and herds of Instagrammers going to get radiation uh, sickness as well. Right, yeah. So, Instagram, um, in, a, in a certain sense, is kind of the perfect medium for pontificating about nature returning because you are literally just posting exactly what you're seeing yeah. in real time. No no outside alienation of uh, of capitalism or of a society. It's just it's, it's bare social media. It's the most reified uh social media platform that exists. So, <laughs> I feel like yeah, so I feel like 
there's there's the, that level and then there's you know everyone jokes and makes fun of them and you know tells them to go home with their little tiny red ball as as we should mm. um but also then people start this fun the fun slippage of it's like no humanity's not the virus you pesky vitalists um capitalism's the virus and uh will what does that mean it's really interesting because it it is as you say it's a slippage between humanity and capitalism uh but this actually goes pretty deep into the core of what we conceive capitalism as being uh which is that capitalism is this totalizing machine logic that has become uh, our primary and autonomous mode of being. And so the only way that that nature can ever come back is if production stops. In a certain way, it's it's almost like, you know, like going on strike, but for for the environment or something like that. There's there's the sense that humanity's fall into capitalism is and into the capital relation uh is irreversible humanity's fall into superstructure initiates a metabolic process by which a void a a disjunct is inserted between man and nature i hope that you're writing this down so it can get published oh yeah no i'm uh i'm just reading from john bellamy foster um (laughs) shout out to monthly review you know hosts money on the left um and uh And yeah, so we're on this trajectory of drift whereby Mm -hmm. the earth and nature itself can't sustain the production processes of the capital relation, which has, one could perhaps say, subsumed relations between uh, social individuals. Right. Well, what's what's so unique about capitalism for, for these people is that capitalism because it exists in nature but has its own logic it slowly it it doesn't just subsume uh human societies it actually subsumes the planet and you you really see this with marxists like david harvey who actually has a geography background and really does talk about capital's movements and its growth and its expansion sort of like plotted on the on the earth you know or like like they've plotted it on a map you know like it's just kind of taking over and it's well it's funny you know like i feel like david harvey what's really important about david harvey's work is that he um got in a space shuttle and actually took on the subject position of the alien other of capital and so he's actually, or, he orbits the Earth. I mean, that's how we can see the capital movements. He has and, to get further and further from the Earth because capital has this endless growth. Yeah. And, and gets, it keeps getting closer to him. So, it, yeah, in order to stay, to stay unbiased and actually continue to be able to use his dialectic for its use value and not for exchange value, he has to just keep drifting. So what you're saying is uh, David Harvey is Matt Damon in The Martian. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm saying that everybody is Matt Damon in The Martian. Uh, it's a modern uh, Crusoe tale. Uh, man in alien nature. So to be more serious, not fully serious, because, you know, who are we kidding? But to be more serious 
Um, I think what's so interesting and troublesome about this is it actually, as we've been talking about on the show, eliminates human agency mm-hmm. in the process of mediating between the production processes and so-called nature. And so what this does is to say, oh, capitalism is the virus is almost to inoculate our own sort of ideological perspectives in modernity, whether, you know, some people will call them enlightenment perspectives from blame and from the, from inoculate us from any responsibility, which is a word that I think will come up uh, quite a bit in this conversation for the way we've mediated nature and the way we've expropriated nature. And I say we here very specifically too, because this is, predominantly a logic of western expropriation and there's important debates going on as well in some of the decolonial and post-colonial literature around what it looks like to to actually have a so-called anthropocene or a capitalocene which gets at this question of like capitalism as this sort of machinic process viral process that contaminates Mm. every part of the world and if capitalism is in every part of the world which for the most part uh is acknowledged to be the case at least by people who who work on on this then to to even posit an anthropocene in the first place is to posit a human occupation of the earth and so of course we go back inside and nature comes back because we're just occupy an occupying force. And that was always going to end up blaming humanity as such is always going to end up to the detriment of the global South and to communities that are marginalized. And that's why I think that those are the real stakes here at, at what we're trying to get at in this episode of the podcast. And I thought, I think it could be interesting then to dig deeper into some of the, the background of these sorts of ideas and, and um, I think you have some readings for us. So in preparation for, for this episode, you had me read Giorgio Agamben. Uh, ah, yes, because, I did. Yeah, because you hate me. And oh, my to God. To be fair, I've read a lot of Giorgio Agamben. So yeah, right. That says and, about myself. Yeah. And I guess reading Giorgio Agamben is this kind of totalizing logic where now I've read <laughs> Giorgio Agamben. I've gone insane. <laughs> so yeah, basically, it's reading Giorgio Agamben. It was a bit like in those serial killer shows when the detectives follow the serial killer back to their home and they finally found the guy and the evidence that it's him is that there's just these like mad scribblings on the wall you know that's kind of like we followed 2020 back to its home and we followed the discourse back to its home and we found not only a bunch of scribblings that totally illuminated all the crazy shit that's led us up to this point in the discourse look if there's one thing that we can do on this show is obsess over maniacal scribblings and attempt to make meaning out of them so let me have it so actually first do you want to uh do you want to just give us a gloss of who agamben is in his field what he means to students like yourself but also i I have a feeling uh he means probably something a little different to you than he does to (laughs) to a lot of students because it he's pretty popular isn't he so Giorgio agamben works sort of in the political theology 
uh, side of religious studies, philosophy, Western philosophy. And he is an Italian philosopher. Uh, He's been prolific throughout the sort of last 30 years of the 20th century and into the 21st century. Um, He wrote a series, uh, a, a, a wide series of texts that deals with questions of the biggest questions, the metaphysical questions, meaning, creation, and nature, these sorts of things. Uh, he, one of his, his, his predominant work is, it's a series called Homo Soccer, and he's been contributing to it uh, quite extensively, and, it, and it's a sort of extensive theorization of philosophies of um, sovereignty, biopower, politics as a, as a modern structure of meaning making and and uh, and how it relates to these metaphysical notions of God and creation and ultimately what Agamben believes we should do about all of these structures of power that he holds in such contempt. Which I want to say before we get into it, it, it's understandable. Like modern sovereignty and modern structures of power have been absolutely shit at mediating and cultivating the way human and as well animal life um, has sought to sustain itself and reproduce itself. And a big thing on this show is I think we're not trying to critique or to be a, be sort of reactionary um, in the sense that we're trying to say, Hey, Marxist, Hey, uh, these sort of radical philosophers, you're wrong about the fact that the last 200 years were bad. Actually, okay, I'm just crossing off everything in my notes. Now, yeah, no, I it's totally important. That's what yeah, yeah. Doing. Take, take the. Re- you have to go get your reactionary tattoo, like covered <laughs> up, and it's actually about sort of changing the frameworks by which we metabolize the last the the years of terrible and everything that we know to be the critique of capitalism, and about importantly affirming things that are repressed both in what we call capitalism and in these critiques of what we would call capitalism and ultimately what what Giorgio Agamben would levy as this sort of logic of of sovereign exception right. and so yeah so that's who he is um and i think it could be useful to perhaps get into a few of the basics of his work and and mm-hmm. ultimately uh, well i was just going to say that as you said his, all of his works are framed around this this idea of of homo soccer uh which for agamben seems to be i i say after reading agamben in preparation for this episode max will tell me if i'm way off base here but it seems to me that for him homo soccer is the flip side of sovereignty it's the subject of a sovereign who uh declares just out of raw power imminent power and violence is able to organize people into a population uh like that can be a medium for laws that homogenize people but then in addition to that what is extra bad about being a homo soccer living in the world of this unaccountable sovereign is that not only are you playing by the sovereign's laws, but what makes the sovereign sovereign is this idea of a state of exception where because the sovereign 
imposed order to chaos in order a little you know shout out to my jordan peterson heads um (laughs) (laughs) which is all i could think about when i was when i was reading this guy um so what we're what you're saying is sovereign is uh daddy sovereign yeah sovereign is is the penis that uh yeah that imposes order on the feminine chaos form blah 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 jordan peterson voice i mean well so to give to give agamben some credit i do i do i identify a little bit as a bit of a feminine chaos form so um (laughs) we'll we'll leave that there and and well i want to redeem your chaotic femme energy from mistreatment at the hands of agamben because i what what we'll get to is that our our issue with that is that we don't think that it's valid ontologically to start with just chaos in the first place, uh, but that it leads to a pessimism uh, because you have at a deep ontological sense just chaos and power. And power is ultimately chaos. Right. Power is is the the strongest uh, the strongest particle in the chaotic mass. Right. Imposing (laughs) imposing uh, order and and law onto onto everyone else. It's interesting to me from more of a Marxist and political economy background, how kind of similar this definition of sovereignty uh, seems to me to the way that Marxists view labor in relation to capital. So if if homo soccer is supposed to be the subject of a power sovereign who created himself, then labor is essentially at the whim of socially created categories by capital. And one thing that we talked about in the social in the last relations. Episode, social relations. One thing we talked about in the last episode uh, a bit was how the power to invest money and initiate production is it becomes a benchmark for classifying different kinds of labor according to their usefulness towards the ends that the capitalists chose. Uh, but because Marxists reify the economy and the market and they take the idea of the market as this kind of, you know, system for granted in in the hands of, of Marxists and, frankly, a lot of heterodox economists before MMT. Shout out to all the, the post-Keynesians out, out there who, uh, you know, who know, who have known best about money for a lot of years, <laughs> but haven't been able to break into any political debates. You're yes. the real MVPs. <laughs> the, the real MVPs. So, yeah, there's this kind of sense... Uh, that the better parts of non-mainstream economics, people like Michael Koleski, who I will read a quote from uh, in a moment, basically view uh, capital as a form of natural raw power that enables capitalists to uh, impose order to chaos and impose a schema of who is skilled labor, who's unskilled labor, who is able-bodied, who is not able-bodied. And what's really important about this, and you know, kind of going back to what you were saying, is we kind of want to yes and this whole idea because it is true that this is a process of 
imposing a schema on onto people that categorizes them uh, and gives them these identities that are then reified and become immutable because we can only imagine people we can only imagine and conceive of productivity on the terms of private capitalists in the same way that that the humanity of homo soccer is really just totally contingent on whether homo soccer is able to to measure up to the standards of the sovereign power or otherwise the sovereign has the right to to kill to kill homo soccer to mm-hmm. excommunicate him in the same way that a private capitalist has the ability to not employ labor to exclude labor to say that labor is unskilled unproductive that any inclusion of labor in the economy is essentially make work that can't do anything except waste everybody's time. And what we want to do with this and say, yes, it's good and right to say that categories like skilled labor and unskilled labor, uh, it, it would be naive to just reify these categories and end and there. And so people like Michael Koleski are right in identifying in the ability to invest a sort of world making. Uh, And actually, I want to then read part of a quote from Koleski. Koleski was a Polish economist who wrote a little bit before John Maynard Keynes. I don't want to get into this too much in case I say, say some of the wrong things. But basically, my understanding of Koleski is that he and Keynes both it kind of around the same time came up with similar theories of investment equaling savings. And so Koleski has this idea of the profit equation. Essentially, what he's arguing is that when capitalists, when individual capitalists spend money, they lose their money. When capitalists as a class spend money, they are buying goods from other capitalists. And therefore, as a class, capitalists retain all of the money that they spend. Therefore, savings is equal to investment. The way that Koleski says it is, if some capitalists spend money, either on investment or consumer goods, their money passes to other capitalists in the form of profits. Capitalists as a class gain exactly as much as they invest or consume, and if, in a closed system, they ceased to construct and consume, they could not make any money at all. Thus, capitalists as a whole determine their own profits by the extent of their investment and personal consumption. In a way, they are masters of their own fate, but how they master is determined by objective factors so that fluctuations of profit appear, after all, to be unavoidable. And I think that this is just so interesting because it was a huge leap forward and one that certainly the Marxist left, although they love to bring up another essay that Koleski did on the political significance of removing uh, employers' ability to threaten to fire workers, it's, it seems to have just kind of totally gone over a lot of Marx's heads that a lot of the economic categories that we use are, are actually socially constructed by the ability to invest. But bringing this back to MMT, what I would say is that MMT, in saying that money is boundless and that the ability to invest 
is never only held by individual capitalists. And insofar as we are relying on capitalists to employ people and to kind of impose order on a chaotic, you know, unproductive population. Insofar as we do that, we are reifying their private property and forgetting that it is socially... Uh, socially provisioned in the first place. And so really what we're doing is we're abdicating our own ability to spend money and our own ability as a public to be in control of abstraction. Uh, it, it seems like for Koleski, for Agamben, uh, I'm seeing a theme here, probably for, for most, <laughs> most people in modernity, Abstraction, uh, the ability to impose rules and categories and the ability to signify comes from immediate power, uh, comes from accumulated economic power, if you are Koleski or a Marxist, or it comes from just literally violence, if you're a Gombin. So it's interesting there's a yeah there's a lot there to work with what I think one thing I'd say as well um, why I was interested in reading Agamben to try and think through what the the superstructure lens offers to this question these questions that we asked at the beginning of the show about um, the coronavirus and and um, about essentially you know believing in the potential to to build a better world is is also to say, right, Koleski's point here also doesn't hold, right? As you were suggesting with arising out of violence, mm-hmm. but that money itself is not an imposition, right? Money itself is the actualization of a politics of production that are already inherent in communal forms and in communal forms of owing and of owing others and of obligation as such. And so thinking then about Koleski and Agamben's critique of sovereignty, taking it on board, but ultimately rejecting the idea of order and chaos to begin with, right? Rejecting this binary of nature and man producing in nature which is which makes up the the very beginning of capital volume one um in the sense that the commodity is something in nature that then man uh takes into his hand to cultivate so it's interesting then right to 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 trace the scribblings back further we we get to the idea right of of that sovereignty induces the homo soccer into uh, what Agamben calls a, a sort of state of bare life, right? A, a, a I life, love that term. It is, it is a term that we will keep coming back to. We will keep throwing at our listeners, um, just like the sovereign throws <laughs> uh, order on, on its listeners. Yeah, um, we're imposing bareness on all of our listeners. We are imposing bareness on our listeners, which is essentially, right, the state of being silenced of, of being silenced as a subject that is only seen for their p- 
pure bare life and not for the form of the life in which they live mm. um and it's a it's an interesting and sort of powerful way to articulate the the sort of as you suggested that the capitalist subject right right um of of the worker who is just milked for their labor value and their labor power and rinse through a machine of surplus generation mm-hmm. that extracts zero sum in a zero sum way, you know, some there's many debates about socially necessary labor time. And then people who try and actually like map the caloric rates of uh, labor value. And we can, yeah, we won't go. Into I want to, they're not even worth our time. Make that um, my career. So let's talk about that after. Cool. We'll uh, talk about that afterwards. Episode. Yeah. I mean, the Patreon that doesn't exist for this podcast, I think ultimately should, should fund your uh, geographic mapping of caloric metabolism as it relates to labor value. So we'll get, we'll get to that afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, which is, yeah, which is to say then that all social relations, right? Of course, the famous quip, money is not a thing. It's social relation. Um, all r- social relations themselves are dependent upon this root alienation or this, this ability at the level of political power to accept the structures of power from their own rules that then render the state of the capitalist subject of the modern subject uh, chaotic and dehumanized. And so moving from there, I think it's interesting then like to bring it back to this question of nature and, and of the metabolic rift and of, of this sort of uh, relationship between capitalism and climate change. It seems to me that what this supposes in its very first moment is that these like what Agamben will call like juridico political forms of mm. of state of sovereignty and then ultimately what marxists will uh theorize through state capitalism and then capital as such and ha- and uh, which you know encompassing and exceeding the bounds of the state as such you could probably think of this sort of exceptionality too along agamben's lines yeah well it's it's really interesting with uh with marxists because for them capital is autonomous from the state but it it's constrained by law but because accumulation is a natural process the accumulation of money is a natural process in the final analysis they're basically able to write the laws and so in a certain sense in the same way that for agamben laws in the normative sense of you know the existing laws that that form structures that people are embedded in are imposed by the sovereign but prior to that is just the sovereign's ability to impose anything there is this there's a kind of mirror image of that in capital being fundamentally outside of the law that it imposes so not only can capital since capital is autonomous not only can capital determine who is skilled and who is unskilled but it can actually it can actually 
by laws and by politicians and by access to the political process and then, you know, formally change the legal structure too. And so I want to actually turn a corner here because I think we've we've given voice, you know, no one can accuse us, even though they will, of not giving voice to the critique of Marxists, the critique that Agamben poses against these sort of legal forms of, of ordering, right? Mm-hmm. But I... I do want to get into specifically where this falls apart. And of course, because we're superstructure, this get this falls apart in in the real binary construction of a base and a superstructure and, and of a material and an immaterial and where money fits into that schema. And so I'm going to read from uh, Agamben's uh, sort of later work called Creation and Anarchy, the Work of Art and the Religion of Capitalism where he talks specifically about money and specifically about the gold standard. And Will hasn't heard this yet, Ooh, so listen. Yeah, I, I really want to hear a gombin on the gold standard. Yeah. So great. on August 15th, 1971, as a gombin writes, when the American government under the presidency of Richard Nixon declared that the convertibility of the dollar into gold was suspended. So what we have here is the classic <laughs> tale Right, that it's such an important moment for the history of money and the history of political economy in the U.S. And you know, to be fair, some MMTers rely on this critique. Uh, I think, like, rely on this rhetorical trope to say, well, since the gold, gold standard, yeah, um, since the seventies, since the seventies, money's boundless. completely different. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we reject that vision, and we're also trying to to lead MMT into a more. Um, less positivist, more sophisticated. Uh, yeah, the, the the point is the point isn't that money stopped being a commodity. It's that our ideology stopped declaring it a commodity. Correct. So to continue from Agamben, although this declaration de facto marked the end of a system that long bound the value of money to a gold base, the news, which arrived at the height of the summer holidays, received less discussion than it would have been legitimate to expect. Yet, beginning from that moment, the inscription that one read on many banknotes, for example, on the pound sterling and the rupee, but not on the euro, he's quoting here, I promise to pay the bearer of the, the sum of, he, he implies gold, mm-hmm. countersigned by the governor of the central bank, had definitely lost its meaning. This phrase now meant that, in exchange for this bill, the central bank would have furnished to the one who made this request of it, granted that anyone would have been foolish, so foolish as to ask, not a certain quantity of gold for the dollar, a 35th of one ounce, but an exactly equal bill. Money was evacuated of any value that is not purely self-referential. Even more astonishing is the ease with which the gesture of the American sovereign, which amounted to annulling the gold wealth of the possessors of money, was accepted. And if, as has been suggested, the exercise of monetary sovereignty on the part of a state consists in its capacity to induce the actors on the market to use in its debts as money, now even that debt had lost all real consistency, had become purely paper. The process of money's dematerialization had begun many centuries earlier when the demands of the market led to introducing letters of exchange, banknotes, euros, goldsmith's notes, 
and so forth, alongside metallic money, which was necessarily scarce and cumbersome. All these forms of paper money are actually titles of credit, and for this reason are called fiduciary money. In contrast, metallic money was valued, or was supposed to be valued, for its content of precious metal, which was moreover, as is well known, unstable. The limit case is that of the silver money coined by Frederick II, which when used revealed the red of copper. Nonetheless, Joseph Schumpeter, who lived, it is true, in an epoch in which paper money had already overcome metallic money, could claim, not without reason, that in the last analysis, all money is only credit. After August 17, 1971, one should add that money is a credit that is founded solely on itself, and that does not correspond to anything else but itself. And so, ladies and gentlemen, children, as in the case of Giorgio Agamben, who fam- famously, <laughs> yeah, boys, boys and girls, and girls yeah, fam- only, uh, yeah, you know, Giorgio Agamben famously considers himself a baby, and <laughs> what we have here is. Uh, the classic the classic false story about money about money's dematerialization in in, in an almost obvious both liberal mm-hmm. hence <laughs> hence the Joseph Schumpeter reference and marxist way of totally buying in to the story that money is material finite scarce and chaotic because you know what as a function of monetary sovereignty that's his view of sovereignty as such. And so what I want to do, and I think what we both want to do on this podcast, is absolutely reject this theory of sovereignty and of monetary sovereignty, which was once based on this immediate contact-based coming together of, of value, of violence, which has now become purely self-referential, which is function to cover over violences, which is not to say that there aren't violences, but which is to say that money has always been a one. I hesitate to even call it a social relation, but it's always been a a referencing medium by which politics has structured, cultivated and reproduced economies and human life in different ways that we can affirm that we can reject but in ways that necessarily are politically malleable and as not scarce, as not chaotic, right? as a medium of relatively stable mediation by which we can organize structures of human life at a distance and we can fight over that organization. It is one that we need to open up and, and affirm as the superstructure. We need to invert the base superstructure logic and suggest that it's the superstructure itself that is the political is the ground of political fight that we need to take on. And so I think it's important also then to insert that agency and to bring it back to the meme itself, which is to say the virus is the virus <laughs> and a rejection of our ability to cultivate and politically maintain structures of ecology and human flourishing and human production is the repression that is inherent in the meme that capitalism is the virus and that takes away our agency with regards to what we can do about climate change. Right, yeah, because they've reified it as 
uh, power that accumulated somewhere in history and therefore has the ability to impose order on the chaos around it. Um, the, the mapping that onto sovereignty and the reification of the sovereign's, you know, quote unquote, power in the first place that enabled it to impose order. Mm -hmm. Having that as, as the prime mover, I think is really, um, is interesting. Agamben calls what you, what you're kind of sort of mapping onto accumulation, uh, constituted power. And it's, 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 yeah, it's funny. I, I feel like I hadn't thought of it in the way of accumulation before, right before we started this conversation, but it's absolutely a reification of sovereignty Whereas Marxists think of sovereignty along the terms of a socialized money form, a reified finite socialized money form that then detaches as a referent. Agamben thinks of power and sovereignty just the same, right? As it, it sort of detaches and becomes self-referential in ways that then accept it from the quote-unquote laws of nature. And and it's another way of saying, like, of mapping it onto climate change, right? One, one could suggest that the power relations, Agamben would probably posit that the power relations as they stand are unsustainable. And that, again, right, humanity, as it's constructed these forms of relationality, is the virus, right? And I think that's where the slippage between this meme and what ends up looking like a sort of burgeoning ecofascism becomes quite apparent. And in that vein, I'm going to read from uh, another one of his books from the Homo Soccer series. Uh, this one wonderfully titled The Highest Poverty, Monastic Rules and Form of Life. I love these titles so much. It's just, it, just as an aside, it's so funny to me how much Marxists think that they hate Foucault and all of these critical theorists for essentially prioritizing, you know, culture and the superstructure over material politics. Like, is there anything more reductive than somebody like Gombin calling his books things like the use <laughs> of bodies and just having all of these schemas where like we're atoms that are through violence being made vectors of language and culture and law and exchange. It's just look, it's, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, I think we could sum up Agamben as the baby who is really pissed that daddy alienated him from his, what Marx would call his virgin soil of nature, <laughs> uh, which, which, uh, which is mommy, by the way. Um, so no, deep cuts. These are, deep these are deep cuts, cuts you know, yeah. deep cuts. Um, good thing that these are superstructural cuts. Cause you know, otherwise hmm. they might affect the base. So in the highest poverty, which again is an affirmation of poverty as a form of life that's predicated on use of, only in a rejection mm -hmm. of property. Um, yeah, if this sounds like some kind of crazy, like Franciscan uh, sect where everybody has taken a vow of silence, it's because that's essentially what it is. That's exactly what it is. And so, in this affirmation of Franciscan Christianity, literally of Franciscan Christianity, Agamben writes near the very end of the book. 
The specific eschatological character of the Franciscan message, in essence, in essence, the goal of the Franciscan message, is not expressed in a new doctrine, but in a form of life through which the very life of Christ is made newly present in the world to bring to completion. Again, the life of Christ. You remember how Christ's life ends? It just, you know, he was very impoverished. Yeah. Um, well, no, he was, but, you know, it, that was good. We should all That's correct. That's correct. So, in which the very life of Christ is made newly present in the world to bring to completion, not the historical meaning of the person in the economy of salvation. Again, we have the economy as salvation, as redemption, which, you know, if you've, if you've read any MMT literature, we can think about, you know, how tokens are redeemed and how it's important that tokens and money has can be redeemed by certain authority figures by which production is mediated again again if we're going to build anything as a society we need that sort of mediation but let's keep going so not the historical meaning of the person in the economy of salvation so much as his life as such his life as such the Franciscan form of life is, in this sense, the end of all lives. The final modus, mode, after which the, man, the manifold historical dispensation of the mode of life, the mode of living, the modi vivendi, is no longer possible. The highest poverty, with its use of things, think fully automated luxury communism mm-hmm. is the form of life that begins when all of the West's forms of life have reached their historical consummation. What we have there is an articulation of what I would posit is the meme that capitalism sovereignty is the virus, right? It is the virus mm-hmm. that needs to be brought to its full consummation as a, as a, metaphorical matter to bring to completion the death and the full life of christ himself as a social formation we need to kill christ we need to kill the virus we are the virus oh uh-oh. it's some kind of death drive it seems it is some kind of death drive and you know i will have to say francis loved birds the cover of Giorgio gombin's book the highest poverty is a picture of francis uh He's uh, delivering a sermon to the to the birds. Yeah. Can, so can can we talk about Francis and and animals for a second? Because he he really, really for him at our highest closest to God form of living, we are essentially animals, right? Right. So we we have. I mean, that's a complicated. That's a more complicated question, I think, for a Gombin. But for Francis. Francis had these very particular. He also uh, thought of himself as a as a minor, right? As a as as one who abdicated any and renounced property, as in a way that a minor, a child, perhaps a baby, can't own anything. Um, <laughs> perhaps a baby who became a philosopher and started perhaps a, cult. a, a baby yeah. who who wrote uh, you know a series of books that could be. Uh, thought of as a declaration that i am baby (laughs) so francis was very much interested in in horses and birds and and like horses consume grain and this is the relation 
of consumption and use, of pure use and not having, right, a non-legal form that by which we purely use and in use we neither have nor don't have. Right, we use we use our own body to use nature. Right, it's um, just we're just existing. We're not we're not accumulating anything because if you're accumulating things, you have to carry them around and keep other people from getting that's them. That's right. And, the whole thing and be, then you it, you're just engaged with the world permanently. In a and way. you like trip over yourself in your Louis the Fourteenth. <laughs> happens to me all the time. I yeah, it's re- it's really sucks. And so he like this figure of horses of birds of worms who just are like rolling around in the dirt he loved what he wanted to be a worm he basically. wanted to be a worm he wanted to like worm his way through the dirt through this sort of viscous mess of soil and and fecal matter yeah in order just to being just like this is communism this is communism right and so I don't know. I mean, it seems to me there's a reason why people call St. Francis of Assisi the first ecologist. And there's a reason why Giorgio Agamben says that to realize the vision of the form of life, uh, the form of Avendi of St. Francis of Assisi, we need to bring to consummation, to end, right? To bring to their end point, Mm -hmm. to sublate, perhaps, the Western forms by which sovereignty, monetary sovereignty, and that which we all live under capitalism, which is itself the virus. And I can imagine, you know, Agamben doesn't, I'm sure, view this as a way by which to end all life, quite to the contrary. However, his logic, just like the logic of the meme, capitalism is the virus, leads to precisely that point, yeah. right? Which is why it's a death drive. That's why it's a death drive. Right. It, it seems like for for Agamben, it's, it's more like he wants abstractly mediated social production to end so that truly free production uh, and truly free production for use, you know, just by us all kind of like being worms in the soil... Uh, you yeah. know, can can really begin. And I, I would actually, I would just correct that. I think mm. he's not actually interested in production. He's interested in inoperativity, what he calls it. Right. So non-operation, non-relation, non-production as a way to break the West forms. Right, because, because worms don't produce. Everything is there. That's it's correct. abundant. They, they, they just bathe. <laughs> Yeah. And and that's, you know, if they ever look, got capitalism, then they would be. Well, <laughs> look, here, here's the thing. We all just want to be babies bathed by our mother's nature. She's not getting paid, you know, reproductive labor, blah, 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 Federici, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, whatever. Agamben's, you know, Agamben wants to bathe in use. And I say blah, blah, blah <laughs> as Agamben here. And so there's this real thinking of like, let's bathe in nature. Because if you bathe in nature, fundamentally, you're not uh, abstractly organizing the production and mediation of nature. And that is the problem for Agamben and for reductive Marxists who don't want to build anything. But it's it's really interesting, this idea that that we need a contraction before we can grow. Yep. Right? I mean, that's taxing and spending. That's taxing right? and spending. That is... 
Avengers Infinity War. Hello, Thanos. We need a contraction, a a real stoppage, a sort of a moment of consummation, right? And to think of consummation along the terms of its its reproductive metaphors and its reproductive valences is to think ultimately an end, right? A creation that is itself uh, perhaps a petit more, uh, 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 forgive my French, all the French babies Jesus, who are listening. Superstructure, Max, but Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, never taking it easy, right? A, a little death. Just a little, <laughs> just a death, a just death, just some, a just some a death, death as a treat. Yeah. A little death drive as a treat, right, Thanos? Just a little death as a treat. And so, if only there was a way to perhaps prove this sort of argument with an articulation of what said Italian philosopher has written about this current crisis. Yeah, hmm. so here's here's what he actually wrote. This is this is an actual article that Giorgio Agamben did. This is kind of a chaser for what we what we just talked about. This was on February 26th of this year and it was the invention of an epidemic. So he starts Faced with the frenetic, irrational, and entirely unfounded emergency measures adopted against an alleged epidemic. Yeah, this is already aged well. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah, so based on all this bullshit that we had to do because of the quote-unquote virus, um, (laughs) he goes on, uh, compares it to the flu, you know, and all all of those tropes. It's, I mean, honestly, it just sounds like Trump. He's a real, honestly, he's a real proud baby. Trump Trump is also a baby. A They're proud both... boy, one could call him. Oh, he's a proud boy. <laughs> God. Uh, yeah. So he so he goes on with all the, you know, usual, you know, like, oh, the flu kills a lot of people. You don't see us, you know, freaking out about the flu, you know, all that kind of thing. Is that your bro Which... voice? <laughs> it's my Gombin voice. <laughs> That's your Gombin voice. Okay, I think you need to amp up the squealing a little bit. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, anybody who reads a Gombin is engaging in a ton of guesswork because he can't actually speak or write because he's a baby. Look, Logos is the the primal problematic of all of philosophy. <laughs> so excuse you. <laughs> yeah. So he says, two factors can explain such a disproportionate response to the crisis. First and foremost... What is again manifest is the tendency to use a state of exception as a normal paradigm for government. The legislative decree immediately approved by the government, quote, for hygiene and public safety reasons, actually produces an authentic militarization of the municipalities and areas with the presence of at least one person who tests positive and for whom the source of transmission is unknown, or in which there's at least one case that's not ascribable to a person who recently returned from an area already affected by the virus. Such a vague and undetermined definition will make it possible to rapidly extend the state of exception to all regions, as it's almost impossible that other such cases will not appear elsewhere. Let's consider the serious limitations of freedom the decree contains. A. The prohibition of any individuals leaving the effective municipality or area. B. A prohibition against anyone from outside accessing the affected municipality or area. C, the suspension of events and initiatives of any nature and of any form of gatherings in public or private places, including those of a cultural, recreational, sporting, and religious nature, including enclosed spaces if they are open to the public. D, 
the closure of kindergartens, <laughs> childcare <laughs> services, and schools of all levels, oh, as no. well as the attendance of school, higher education activities. And Where is he going to go? I was kind of ready to play devil's advocate, but they're closing the kindergartens. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Wait, I, I just want to say, like, this is perfectly playing out the exact, like, Yes, and, but also this is hilariously ridiculous critique that um, we sort of played out in this episode, which is to say, yeah, like, sure, there are definitely ways in which, like, martial law sort of events can can escalate punitive authoritarian regimes, right? But but that's that's not all. That's not all Giorgio Agamben is saying, is it? No, they're, they want to take his pacifier from him, literally. <laughs> he's like a right-winger, except instead of guns, he's upset that his bib is going <laughs> to be expropriated by, by martial law. So the disproportionate reaction of what, according to the CNR, is something not too different from the normal flu that affects us every year is quite bleak. <sighs> Yeah, well, you know, he's uh he's a baby, so you know, he he literally was born yesterday, so you can't you can't be too mad. It is almost as with <laughs> it's almost as if with terrorism exhausted as a cause for exceptional measures, the invention of an epidemic offered the ideal pretext for scaling them up beyond any limitation. Again, this is first of all, it's notable that Agamben I think became well known pretty much during the Bush years. There's validity to martial law ratcheting up and and all of this kind of thing. But for him, it, it seems like he's like, no, they're trying to use this as an excuse to make us into a society. That Well, that's, a, that's, it's not even, that's not a joke to say. Like, that is precisely the point, right? Yeah. It, it, it is precisely to say that, oh, no, the invention of this epidemic has made our inherent and ontological sociality evident. So it has to be invented. There's no other way, right? It, it 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 can only be invented. Right. For us, we have inherent sociality. For him, it's horrifying because like a war or a war on terror, uh, a pandemic provides a, just a ridiculous reason that couldn't possibly exist in the real world, but just a ridiculous reason that would mean that we're all part of a society and related to each other. Precisely right. And oh my gosh, then we have to start theorizing how we're going to like start using forms of society to cultivate a better world. And that is, it's not even like a step too far. It's just completely not thinkable. To these sorts of <laughs> two thinkers. wrongs don't make a right, you know. <laughs> it it doesn't work like the only way you can fight a bad guy with a society is a good guy with a society. You know, it's just you're just getting deeper and deeper into being entangled. Oh no! Did you just call MM Tears like a good guy with a gun? <laughs> All right, we'll cut this. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh. So. I didn't say gun, I said society. It's not my fault that they're the same thing ontologically. Well, society is a gun pointed at babies. So I'll, you know what? I'm society is violence at a distance. I, I, I retract all of this. I am going to walk into the forest with Giorgio Agamben and Martin Heidegger, famous, famous anarchist. And, (laughs) We're all going to figure out how to fully consummate the body of Christ. Yeah. You're, you're going to basically you're calling a general strike for all the particles in the universe. I mean, there's no other way. There's no other way. Um, and Thanos knows that. Thanos yeah. knows that. So so before we go, 
I can't, I can't let us end before we read the last of a series of three uh, essays that Agamemnon has written about the coronavirus epidemic, in which he says, and I quote, oh God. the church above all, which in making itself the handmaid of science, which has now become the true religion of our time, you know, epidemiology, fuck them, um, has radically repudiated its most essential principles. The church under a pope who calls himself Francis has forgotten that Francis embraced lepers. It has forgotten that one of the works of mercy is that of visiting the sick. It has forgotten that the martyrs teach that we must be prepared to sacrifice our life rather than our faith, and that renouncing our neighbor means renouncing faith. So he really did want Francis to get the coronavirus to die. I was not joking. Like, I literally wasn't joking when I said that. Um, and, And if this is not just the perfect emblem of what this critique and structure of critique of Agamben sovereignty, all based have that uh, th- that matter in uh, a sort of superstructure logic of money and and mediation and relation as such, is that fundamentally speaking, if we're all going to live like Saint Francis, we need to act as a society out of faith in our potential to destroy relation. And to, and to cultivate a, a form of life that is predicated on non-relation. And that means, that means suicide, right? That means taking the life of the Western formulation. That means killing and letting the body of Christ die. Letting marginalized populations die, right? Populations at risk in the United States, right? The comorbidities of racism, Letting these populations die out of a faith in our non-relation. Out of our faith in non-relationality as the base of existence. And fundamentally speaking, you know, we can joke, but this is, this is like, it's a disgrace. Yeah, it's dark. It's real dark. And on that happy note, I think this concludes uh, our second episode of Superstructure. And I think as we move through this show, we're going to make sure we plan to do more foreign language bits <laughs> each time. Um, <laughs> I, I kid. But do uh, look for us on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're, we're becoming a real thing now. Uh, and make sure you follow uh, Will Beeman at a going account and myself at max Seho on twitter you know we started this episode denigrating instagram but now i feel like an instagrammer yeah you should all follow max and not me on instagram yeah you should definitely request to follow me on instagram i'm gonna be yeah sorry request to follow him he'll he'll decide if that interferes with his bare instagram use that's look i i use my body in a way this is not some social relation you can't just you can't just keep tabs on me